So getting back to what we first talked about is it comes back to cost of gain. So if your cost of gain is low enough, why not keep feeding these calves? Why do we have to get rid of them in December or January? Why not feed them till February, March? Feed yards are always buying cattle every month of the year at all different weights. So if it pencils in and now you have your opportunity to use livestock risk protection or the futures market or whatever, or pre-pricing, all those fit into that equation as to whether we should dump them today or feed them for a little bit while longer. I practice what I preach in that deal. I don't sell my personal calves until March, the end of March, to put weight on the calves. And the question always comes back to, were those implanted? And I'll have to say, yes, the steers were. Are they discounted market? Not in my book. And so there's always these myths that exist out there that don't necessarily ring true if you do a good job of practical feeding to the calves. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and we're excited to actually have a repeat guest today, Dr. Carl Hoppe, and uh, he is joining us from North Dakota State University. Uh, he previously received a bachelor's degree in animal science from South Dakota State University, uh, did his master's more focused on the reproductive side at SDSU there and then did his PhD in animal science also from SDSU. And so now he is an extension livestock specialist at North Dakota State University. Been there for just a year or two now, Carl. Um, and you've been on the show before, so our listeners can go back and kind of listen to your origin story that we talked about previously. So maybe just start us out with just a reminder of your current position and responsibilities up there at uh, NDSU. Sure. I'm the extension livestock specialist located at our Carrington Research Extension Center. We have a county agent-based system in North Dakota, so I apply information to our county extension agents, our agricultural and natural resource agents, uh, across all of North Dakota, as well as working directly with cow-calf producers and feedlots in North Dakota. Yeah, I've been here a little time. I've been in the same office here for 33 years. And if you can tell by the stuff in the back of the behind me, uh, some of those binders I haven't used for maybe that long. But anyway, we like to keep our stuff around just because... There's some history there that we can learn from. Well, I rarely record in my office at school, uh, mostly because you would just have so much crap behind me that it would be extremely distracting. I am absolutely the person who just has stacks of things on their desk. But if I ever clean it and file it, I will never find it again. But if you came in and said, do you know where this paper is? I could tell you that it's 14 pieces of paper down on the left side stack of the desk. So I guess it's organized chaos. <laughs> oh, we used to have my, I'd call my mentor, LaDon Johnson was a ruminant, ruminant nutrition 
professed at North Dakota State University, and uh, LeJohn was an encyclopedia just like that. He had stacks of paper throughout his office, six, 12 feet deep. He could pull out the report from 1952 that was located right down here on the topic that you're asking for. And everybody always made fun, but he was an encyclopedia. And I still use his works today in visiting about alternative feedstuffs that are promoted that we have in North Dakota. And the latest one was Camelina. Kind of like, I wow, thanks, Ladon. Thanks for providing that information for me because I have yet to see Camelina. That's actually, uh, so we're recording this at the end of September in 2023 uh, for those listening in the future. And uh, Dan Loy is our director of the Beef Center at Iowa State who just retired this summer. We just had his retirement um, shindig earlier this week. And that is exactly how officing next to Dan has been for the 14 years I've been at Iowa State. I would pop in his office and be like, I have this really random question about something I've never heard about. And he would scratch his handlebar mustache, right? And say, hold on, there's a file on that in the Beef Center files. And he would disappear and come back and be like, here's everything you need to know about this. And I'd be like, great. So he was, he was an awesome resource. I already missed that. Oh, it's, and, and the worst, we have to uh, share that knowledge with everybody that's just coming up through the ranks at this point. So, um, you know, but we have to learn these things over and over again by ourselves as well. You, you never learn anything, any, you don't learn anything as well as when somebody asks you a question about something and then you have to research it and share it with them. Then you remember for a while. Definitely that teaching part, right? I, you know, I know things now about nutrition from teaching nutrition classes for the last decade plus that, you know, I'm sure I learned multiple times in undergrad and grad school, but they never sunk in until you had to be the one responsible to explain it to somebody else. (laughs) I sure agree with that. I have to bring comment to the uh, horseshoes uh, above the doorway behind me. That says NACA, the National Association of County Agricultural Agents. And, uh, I was putting them in their Hall of Fame last year for the extension work that you do. So I always have to appreciate uh, extension work. And it's a whole different realm than our academia or teaching grad students or doing research. So thanks for letting me here. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is really shortening the gap between the science with practice, right? <laughs> when you work in extension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how true. Okay. Well, I think we're going to talk about a topic that's going to be really timely for our audience right now and something that I'm very interested in as a feedlot nutritionist, because it ultimately is something that affects folks like in my line of work. And that is going to be, um, you work with a lot of producers up there in North Dakota. And at this time of year, it might be when folks are trying to make decisions about what to do with those calves out uh, nursing mama right now. So let's talk about some of the options that you might talk through with producers if we say, okay, I'm gonna trying to decide when I wanna wean, trying to decide what to do with that calf, when should I market? There's a lot of different decisions here. So maybe start with, um, we had this discussion a lot in Iowa lately, actually. Is there still value in preconditioning a calf versus just selling them straight off of mom? I think you'll find our buyers in North Dakota that North Dakota is a sell barn auction barn system. Cattle are sold direct too, but a lot of cattle go through our sale barns for price discovery. Most of the buyers, if not all the buyers at this point, will require that the cattle be pre-vaccinated or vaccinated before they're purchased. Otherwise, they come at a substantial discount. That discount disappears as the cattle get older. So if they've not been more than likely by the time they get to be uh, 10 months of age, 
they have probably already had one or two rounds of shots into the cattle at that time. And by shots, I mean vaccinations, uh, both for the uh, clostridials as well as the virals. And uh, uh, usually if that's done, um, if that, well, I should back up and say, if that's not done, cattle are discounted. And buyers know that. They want to know that because their feedlot operators have identified cattle deaths. And of course, if you ever do your budgets with cattle, um, the most impactful thing is cattle deaths on whether you've made money in a group of cattle or not. So death is a big issue. Vaccination really goes a long ways, especially when the cattle are commingled. So uh, I do believe this preconditioning or backgrounding or whatever is advantageous. We do have people sell right off the cow in North Dakota. Uh, mostly because uh, these cattle are born in April and May. So if you add seven months to April and May, all of a sudden it gets to be Jan November, December. And rather than weaning the calves from feeding them for 45 days, they just ship right off the cow. But normally those cattle have been vaccinated prior to shipping, somewhere through there, and uh, certainly works. So that's the health side of it uh, when it comes to is it worthwhile uh, doing that? Absolutely in North Dakota. That's a, a profound recommendation to yes. Now there's different ways to do it too. So that's another whole story, which should be led by a veterinarian and not me. I'm a nutritionist. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Although it should be something that, you know, of all things, preconditioning is the best place to have a vet and a nutritionist on your team, right? So that you can try to get those calves not, not only off to a healthy start in terms of their vaccine status, but also in terms of getting them used to the magic of feed delivery and feed in a bunk and whatever novel feedstuffs they might see for the first time. All those fit together. The I had a phone call yesterday that talked about, oh, I'm going to wean my calves and I'm thinking about two different creep feeds to use and I'm going to use a self-feeder. Oh, you know, that certainly can work, but you always run the risk of bloating, acidosis, dead calves and uh, teaching I like to say it that way, teaching our calves how to eat. We have to figure out how to train our calves or we got to provide feed deliveries that don't invoke calves feeding themselves to death. <laughs> if it's that tasty a feed, they'll overconsume, and it's up to you to manage the overconsumption so that doesn't occur. And that's a hard thing to do with a cell feeder. Now there are feed additives you can put in, but still that's another step and an effort that's to be done. We talk about those things in North Dakota. I still like to go back to the total mixed ration, or quite frankly, hand feeding is an option too, if you don't have that many head of cattle. Would you say most of your feeders um, that you would be working with there in North Dakota would be kind of similar to ours that we would have here in the upper Midwest where they're from a diversified livestock operation. So they've got both crops and livestock. So usually they have access to mixing equipment or things like that, or they're, they already are going to be feeding maybe mixed rations to the cows over the winter. So they do have access. I find that often when I have conversations with folks about things like a total mixed ration, the equipment is the first, you know, limiting step there. Oh, we've moved on to that point now where should I now, which vertical mixer brand should I have? That's the discussion now rather than should we use a mixer wagon? Should it be a auger type mixer wagon? No, we've actually, everybody's migrated on because we're high forage 
use type rations. So that's where usually we everybody's got equipment in North Dakota, except for those beginning ranchers that are starting out on their own without parental help or family help to uh, get them established. Then they may not have that access. We, you know, every, we work with everybody, not just those that have access to expensive equipment. So we know that preconditioning calves can have premiums associated with it, especially if we kind of do everything right when we think about selling calves. And certainly in an era where we're getting better and better about being able to share what has happened to a calf along his way. And, you know, increasingly our consumers are interested in that. And so I know as a feedlot, you know, nutritionist, if I have the background on a set of calves, I'm willing to potentially pay a premium for something because I know I don't have that, you know, high death risk, um, maybe associated with that group if I was putting something else together. But one of the, you know, pushbacks that we get sometimes when we talk to folks about should I should or should I not precondition is the fact that calves actually often lose weight after weaning. It's a stressful time. There's a lot of pacing. They haven't figured out how to eat properly and things like that. So we've kind of targeted this 40 some days, six weeks or so of preconditioning is kind of that minimum to sort of get them straightened out, get you know your boosters in them, get them figured out how to eat in and get their weight back in the right direction. So when you talk to producers about preconditioning, is that usually where the story ends? Or are there also conversations about, hey, why do you have to sell this calf after just six weeks of preconditioning? Well, nice segue, because what I usually try to encourage people is, is once you've gone to the work of adapting calves to a ration and gotten over their initial sickness phase and vaccinated, why are we selling them at that point? The real question comes down to cost per pound a day gain and adding value to your calf. We're a farmer feeder state in North Dakota, so most people raise their own feedstuffs, which can be purchased at a discount or however you wish to do that to yourself, than uh, buying commercial buying commodity feeds and bringing into your farm place. So since they're producing their own feeds, their cost of production will be quite a bit lower. Now the question is: is why stop at eight hundred? Why stop at seven hundred pounds or say eight or eight hundred pounds? Why not continue the weight gain? And then there's always a discussion of, so what should our average daily gain be? And many years, 30 years ago, yeah, it has been that long. I, I brought this Nick guy's name up before, LaDon Johnson, who's our beef nutritionist, our extension beef nutritionist here at NDSU, did a project where he backgrounded calves at um, basically two and a half pounds per day gain 30 years ago. And those calves did not show any decrease in feedlot performance. So um, that's always been the gist there is that we always look for compensatory gain when we buy a group of calves. We like to have them under uh, uh, growthy but not finished out or fattened out or any of those issues that might decrease their compensatory gain behind them. And when cattle come off of grass, that certainly is how they, they've grown size and, and frame and they have capacity, but they certainly have the opportunity to put on weight and muscle. Well, in backgrounding calves, we need to be cognizant of how much weight gain we can put on. And I bring up this issue of 30 years ago because our type of cattle have somewhat changed over 30 years. We have some really growthy calves in North Dakota. Now we have some cattle producers that don't have growthy calves as well, but predominantly we have selected for larger bulls, which in return leads to larger mature weights. So consequently, these cattle can put on weight and sometimes throttling these and I'll say that throttling calves back to only three pounds per day gain is not deleterious to future feedlot gain. 
However, you're going to go out and grass and the grass won't sustain three pounds a day gain. You probably don't want to feed them three pounds per day gain over the winter time when they're going to go to grass and only gain two pounds. They're probably going to lose some weight and body condition out on pasture that probably won't be cost effective. So getting back to what we first talked about is it comes back to cost to gain. So if your cost to gain is low enough, why not keep feeding these calves? Why do we have to get rid of them in December or January? Why not feed them till February, March? Feed yards are always buying cattle every month of the year at all different weights. So if it pencils in and now you have your opportunity to use livestock risk protection or the futures market or whatever, or pre-pricing, all those fit into that equation as to whether we should dump them today or feed them for a little bit while longer. I practice what I preach in that deal. I don't sell my personal calves until March, the end of March, to put weight on the calves. And the question always comes back to, were those implanted? And I'll have to say, yes, the steers were. Are they discounted market? Not in my book. And so there's always these myths that exist out there that don't necessarily ring true if you do a good job of practical feeding to the calves. Yeah, I want to talk about a couple of things there. One, I agree. I think there's actually been some survey data recently looking at some of the uh, superior livestock auction data and others that would you know support what you say, which is implanted cattle are not getting discounted um, at the sale barn. Um, I actually think implants are a really, really important tool not only because they have a really good return on investment for our producers, but because it helps us, <clears throat> excuse me, manage cattle frame. And to me, that's the most important thing that I want to manage when I think about this kind of time period between weaning and finishing. I want to put frame on that calf. And that's exactly what an anabolic implant will do, right? It shifts that growth curve such that he's essentially having a little more bone, a little more skeletal growth there. And now all of a sudden, instead of him finishing at 1300 pounds, when he's half an inch or six tenths of an inch of back fat and a good quality grade for us, we can add 100, 150, 200 pounds to that. And to your point, you know, I love to go back to the Jude Capper statistic where, you know, from 1977 to 2007, which is already several years ago now, our cattle almost doubled in their potential for growth, 44% improvement in average daily gain in that time. So we have tremendously growthy cattle. And I think it's very cool to see working with producers to figure out how they can capture that growth potential. So bring that up, I just got to share that I do a project, we've been doing it for 25 years with the Dakota feeder calf show people out in Turtle Lake, North Dakota. We bring those calves into Carrington and feed them out. There's usually 20 to 40 different producers that can sign these groups of three or four head of cattle to be fed out. And my point here, there's huge differences in the gainability between these different herds and the calves they submit. Um, yeah, anywhere from two and a half pound a day gain up to four or higher over the overall in the over the overall feeding period. And it's all based on the genetics that they provide. There is a wide variation out there. But the one thing I have found over the years is that the cattle that are the herds that always seem to perform the best, because we have repeat customers, you might say, they keep bringing their cattle back. Those herds are always top herds. And the ones that don't perform quite as well seem to always continually perform that that way. So you need to know what type of cattle you have before you take this recommendation of how fast or far you should feed them. And that of course plays into your average day of the king. Now my point is if you know your cow herd and what you have, by all means, please exploit that to your advantage or make sure you somebody else pays up for your type of cattle. <laughs> so uh, would you recommend that like 
you know, for something like frame scoring and muscle scoring would be a couple of things that we could do, right? So are they really lightly muscled cattle? Are they heavier muscled cattle? Um, you know, are they, you know, so frame score, a bigger number is going to be a taller calf. Um, and, and we can see that, right? Like even in a small cow herd, you can be like, well, that's the cow that, you know, we think she's 1200 pounds, but she's actually 1400 pounds. Right. <laughs> and, and we have these kind of big varieties. Right. And then we, we just, you're right. We get this big spread. So if producers are trying to get a handle on knowing what kind of rate gains they should be pushing for, if they choose to background their cattle, is there anything else besides something like frame score that you might recommend for them? Well, history is what is the best guide there. Once you've fed a group of calves, now you know what you have. If you take the time to explore it and talk to the buyers on the type of calves that you provide. Um, some calves should be grown for another five months at two pounds a day gain or less before they're shipped. Other cattle, um, usually they're gaining quite well. I don't have a good number for you to say like frame score, uh, body weight, uh, muscle score, that type of thing. Um, you find out these cattle that don't perform as well just don't have the depth of rib. So I always got to wonder if the amount of internal organs might influence the uh, rates of gain in these cattle. But then when you look at the cutouts, the carcass weights and those types of things, um, it's certainly uh, depth of rib doesn't appear to to make a difference in that point, carcasses still hang up well and they gain well. So. Yeah. I think intake is such a huge factor, right? That's one of the things that, um, you know, I tease some of the guys at Iowa state sometime with our brand software and I'll be like, you know, I've never managed to have what, what brand says is going to be my average daily gain. I always beat it. And it's in part because of our facility there at Iowa State, right? We're in a partially covered, um, they're, you know, protected from the wind in the winter and they just eat us out of house and home, you know, so, and, and they, they, they have really good feed efficiency. So they're achieving the gains, you know, to meet that intake. But to me, that's one of the biggest things that I see as difference when I think about like Northern type cattle versus Southern Plains cattle, obviously steam flake corn is a difference in those diets and that'll have lesser intakes there, but it just seems like intakes can be just big up here in these northern cattle we have a lot of depth i call it depth of rib they have a lot of capacity in our in our cows um, that's partly by design uh, that's the type of cattle we raise uh, that's the type of cattle that produce the most money when we've got a sale barn excuse me at a bull auction buying bulls and that follows into your cow herd and yeah our cattle um, i know what you mean by the estimated intakes I'm always, my cattle are always 10% higher than what the estimations would be. And you, once you have history, you just calculate into that and you can predict their gain based on what their intake is and what their expected weights are. And it, it, it actually does literally show up. So uh, it's there. So we just need to feed accordingly. We have lots of different feed resources in North Dakota. And a lot of times when you start feeding calves, you start off with a hay-based diet because that's what they're used to out on grass. And then from there, we people slowly put them on feed. And that's the challenge. They put them slowly on feed. And my thought is, why do we need to slow them up that much? Now, in my realm, a pound and a half is slowly putting calves on feed. That two and a half is kind of where you need to be. You can move them faster than that, too, depending upon what your background is. And when I say two and a half, I'm referring to average daily gain. Some calves can gain three pounds per day gain. Now, here's the other thing that we find out in North Dakota is that if you're uh, uh, just going to background these calves for 45 days or six or 60 days, 
a higher rate of gain will not show any additional flesh on these cattle because they're still doing compensatory gain because the cattle probably weren't creep fed out on pasture and our pastures get notoriously short in nutrients come uh, October, November, even December. So we can afford some pretty fast weight gains at that time. But if you continue with that same ration for another three months, we're going to have cattle that are probably overfat. So you need to be deliberate in what type of, when you're going to sell the calves, and what type of ration you're going to have them have on them. And of course, that affects your cost of gain. One of the things we were talking a little bit about before we hit record here was some of the tricks that producers might think about to help calves um, learn or, uh, some of these novel feedstuffs before we wean them. And we've got, you know, kind of this additional psychological stress, mama's gone from me, but now you want me to eat whatever this thing is in the bunk in front of me, but I've never seen any of this stuff before. So what are some of the tricks that you try to use or recommend to producers to help them teach those calves what that feedstuff might be? Well, the first one I like is just feed the cows, whatever you're going to be feeding the calves after weaning. So in other words, if the calves have never seen silage before, be sure to feed the cows silage, uh, the cow-calf pair silage for a week before weaning time. And the cows will teach the calves that silage is an agreeable feed. Same thing would go with distiller's grains as well. Cattle will turn up their nose to these fermented feeds that smell different if they've never seen it before. There are intake modifiers that a lot of commercial companies have that will decrease feed intake. So you won't have that overconsumption or uh, uh, that's what we want to avoid. Overconsumption leads to bloat, diarrhea, death, all that. Um, we want to avoid that. Uh, but my trick really is feed the cows and their calf the ration that you're going to feed the calf after weaning. And then the calves go right to the feed. And matter of fact, do it in the same feed bunks too. And the calves will go right to feed immediately the next day. And quite frankly, I find out that when calves get to be that seven, eight, nine months of age, the cows need the calves more than the calves need the cows. The calves are ready to be weaned. They're ready to find their own thing. They're like teenagers ready to be off on their own. But uh, the cows, they still miss those calves. And that's the biggest problem. So I weaned uh, a little early this year. Normally I wouldn't have weaned yet, but it's been really dry here. So I weaned maybe three weeks ago now. And like I said, it's the end of September as we're recording this. And the day before I weaned, one of the calves was like about six paddocks down the way, just enjoying the paddock that I was actually reserving to put the cows into so that I could fence line wean because it was next to the corral where I was going to put the calves. And I walked past her and I said, well, Missy, apparently it's time to wean because we're being very independent today. <laughs> They're ready. The cattle were ready. Right. I like that. She, she's, she's ready. And it's, and it's so true about your comment that calves will pay attention and learn about this. So I have a few stories on this. So one of them would be, um, again, especially these last few years as it's been dry, I've been feeding some hay and then just a distiller's corn and limestone um, mix and supplementing that. And so, you know, the calves now I mean, the cows don't let them eat much of it, right? Because they're like, get out of here. Um, but they've seen it, they've smelled it, they've seen that the cows, you know, attack it, right? They're like, okay, so this must be good stuff. They never miss a beat when I wean them and, you know, put them in and I deliver it in the same feed trough, just like you said. And again, I just have a handful of cows, right? Because I just have a little acreage. The other one would be, um, I've been talking to some people who have been doing research uh, with some of like, the warm season grasses, so like Sudan and sun hemp and some of these other things, and some interesting stories there where some of the animals who are like, what the heck is this crazy sun hemp plant thing, and they won't eat it, uh, but once one of them is brave enough to try it, 
then they all go to town, right? Or if a, a cow has seen it before in a previous year, then they'll come back and be like, hey, I remember this, that it was good stuff. And so like seeing even some performance differences in studies when you had animals who had seen it before versus who hadn't. And then the other one would be um, knowing ranchers out in Idaho who put cattle out to range and they actually, when they put the pairs out to range, if they can't, if they don't have enough range to put all the pairs out, they will keep the bull calves at home, the cows with bull calves at side at home, and they'll send the heifer calves at side with the pairs out to the range because they want those heifers to learn how to forage on the range so that they'll be successful as cows later. That's a real good point. I, I, when you brought that up, my first thought was, feed aversion and those types of things. Yeah, humans are just like cattle, aren't we? Or cattle just like humans. We're not going to try that unless somebody else does. And then, hmm, didn't kill them. Maybe I should try it too. <laughs> the, the other thing I like to bring up, there are feed aversions too. Uh, we have things uh, in North Dakota, a plant called leafy spurge. It has a latex interior to it. Sheep will eat it. Cows will actually eat it if they've never seen it before. Heifers will. And after they've eaten it for a week or two, their intake will, they won't eat it anymore, whatever the issue is. So you need to be careful that the feedstuffs that you put up don't have these feed aversion issues in as well. So in other words, we have leafy spurge infestations in North Dakota, and it's pretty easy to just hay that ground. Well, now you can have that, yeah, in the feed, you're going to be feeding your cattle. So please be careful on what type of feed you're given to your calves and what you purchased yeah, I can't remember what the number is. I should know because I teach this lecture, but there are a lot of taste buds in the cow's tongue. But interestingly, a lot of them are simply designed to be things like bitterness sensors and other things that are basically designed to help them say, I don't want to ever taste that again. That feed made me sick or something else. So it's there, there are more taste buds that are more about things to not use or eat than they are about to, to do it. So it's very different than when we think about like, in swine nutrition, if we have palatability issues, right, we can add an artificial sweetener or something because they kind of have a sweet tooth and we can drive that. And that doesn't necessarily work the same in cattle. They have different kind of taste bud profiles. And especially when they're out grazing, that's a smorgasbord where they can eat what they want. <laughs> Unless they're severely hungry, then that's not a good deal either. Absolutely. Um, one of the other things that... Um, producers might be kind of starting to think about this time of year is, do I sell cattle in this tax year or do I sell cattle in the next tax year? And that's kind of, you know, there's some, sometimes there's a lot of things, whether or not you have labor, whether you have feed, whether you've got other things that you need to write off on the taxes. Um, but cattle prices are pretty darn good right now. So there might be a lot of producers who are trying to, to make this exact decision that we're talking about today, which is do I wean them straight off the cow and sell them and try to get the best price I can and just, you know, sit back and enjoy the holidays? Or do I, you know, background and try to add some even more value? So any things, hard not giving advice rather here, we're not CPAs, but um, what kind of questions should be pr producers be thinking about as they're trying to make this decision? Well, I have to divert back to what a wise veterinarian humbled me with. What do we do? the same thing we did last year. And that's hard to overturn that thought process. We've always sold in December. We're going to sell the third week of December, and that's just the way it's going to be. And we've got our tax implications in that place. And like you said, there's ways to uh, maybe just not sell much grain this year and sell the cattle instead or figure out another way to work things or maybe have excess income coming from a different direction or excess expenses, and you manage that type of tax bill. And, of course, there's income averaging, too, and 
um, you just can't get away from paying taxes. Eventually, even after 30 years, someday you're going to have to end up paying taxes. So that's just the issue you run into. But I always come back into what feeds do we have and what is your cost to gain? And if you can lock in a price, especially now with livestock risk protection as an opportunity, that type of insurance, um, rather than using the futures markets as calls and puts, because every time I talk to people about the calls and puts in the futures market, they invariably always talk about how they have done that and how they got talked into doing more than what they probably should have needed to do. Well, with livestock risk protection, you buy a policy and you forget about it. Now, it's got its own caveats that you deal with, too. I bought that before. And we just don't sell whatever weight of calf we have at that particular price. It's all based off eight weights. And you just got to understand what it really means. But uh, um, the real issue in my book comes down to, do you have feed resources available? What are the costs of those feed resources? And then can you put that into cattle at a profit? which really I boil down to cost per pound of gain. So if we can make an extra 50 cents per pound of gain and put on 200 pounds, that's $100 in my book, isn't it? Yeah. What yardage charge do you want to charge yourself? Well, that's totally up to you because that pen's probably going to be empty. Whether you, If you don't feed cattle, it's going to be empty. If you feed cattle, it's going to be there. So your, your fixed costs are there no matter what. The tractor's there. The real question is whether you want to work or go skiing. So, you know, and you got a cow herd, so you can't go skiing. So you're kind of stuck. So why not do the extra work on these years when things look profitable? I had a phone call. Yes, it was yesterday. Um, he actually had the unique question. It looks like. It looks like we can buy calves and actually feed them with a profit at this particular time using the futures market. That usually doesn't happen very often. And I said, absolutely, that's right. Rarely, usually the cattle feeders purchase, drive the price of feeders up enough so they barely make any money feeding cattle to finish. The price of their inputs are higher. But the way things are set up this year for backgrounders, you might be able to take these lighter weight calves and put weight onto them. Because most feed yards don't like to take balling calves, but they do like to take seven, eight weight and nine weight calves or a thousand pound calves. So somebody else, there's an opportunity there. And we were talking earlier on our discussion um, about stalker cattle versus backgrounded cattle. And backgrounded really means feeding cattle in a feedlot in North Dakota for something at a ration that's less than what a finishing ration energy content would be. Uh, targeting your average daily gain, targeting your body condition size, frame size, as well as uh, condition score, and uh, doing it so there's some extra money in your own pocket for doing it. Plus, if you're like me, you just got to see how your calves grow. Well, it makes me happy to hear that a lot of feedlots don't necessarily want the balling calves to come in. I mean, I, I totally get that, right? And it it it's kind of like when the confined cow thing started to get hot several years ago, and all of a sudden there was like pairs showing up in feedlots and stuff, right? Like when they had converted over to do that, and somebody was like, it turns out that pen riders are not cowboys in the sense that they don't know what to do with the calves, right? And, and it's like... Of course they don't like, you know, they're not used to, you know, calves running all over creation because they'd get under fences and then they'd be someplace they weren't supposed to be. Or, you know, calves getting trampled up by the bunks if the cows didn't have enough space to eat because the calves want to eat next to them. Any of a million challenges that they had with trying to have pears in the yard. Right. But it's just because that's not what we're really set up to do in the feedlot. So, yeah, bring me a straightened out calf who knows which way is up. who knows how to find the water. He's already got his vaccines. He's ready to hit the ground running. 
Um, and that makes me a happy feedlot nutritionist any day of the week. And I'm saying, let's go ahead and take these wean calves, feed them for a while, and then let the feed yards uh, bring them in at a heavier weight and deal with them at that point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's opportunity here in our industry. That's actually one of my favorite parts about the beef industry, right? And especially the, I mean, you talked about some facilities and resources that folks would need to have to be able to do some of these things. But especially in this part of the country with diversified operations where you have the crops and the animal, you can make the decision to say, is this the year that I put up more silage because I might want a background? Or is this the year that I want to put that cropland into something else? Or I want to think about cover crops so that I can do some, um, you know, lower gain, you know, grazing, or maybe I want to supplement when they're on cover crops and, you know, can really hit some nice gains and, and sell them, like you said, February, March, when you've gotten to 800, 900, 1,000 pounds. Yeah. Um, we're in an area in North Dakota that can have drought or excess rain. Uh, it's, um, you know, where I grew up in Iowa, predictability was pretty good. Uh, up here, um, we can have late plantings with legion preventive crop, preventive planting, which means that they can plant it to something else, but still collect an insurance on the crop that they could not plant because it couldn't get in by the end planting date that was identified. And that creates an opportunity for cattle feed, some really cheap cattle feed. Um, because they basically got paid once. Now they can raise a crop on it for something else, but they can't harvest it for grain. It's got to be utilized for feed, whether it be barley hay or oat hay, or it could even be sorghum sedan hay or, or a silage. Um, the other thing we run into is droughts where we have rain in January and May and April, and May, and it gets planted and then there's no more rain for the rest of the season. And so you can chop that filled crop into silage and utilize that as cattle feed at a low cost. So in reality, we have these feedstuffs that have no value to them, but can be added in value by feeding it to cattle. That's the other opportunity to look at. And we run into a lot of that in North Dakota based on different locations, not the whole state in general, but just based really on your unique situation because North Dakota is unique. I like that. Well, and it's, you're really talking about, you know, adding value to forages by putting them through cattle so that you can then sell more pounds of cattle. But it's exactly why cattle feeding started in this part of the country at all, right? Which was to add value to the corn crop. And that was, you know, a way to, you know, increase the value of the corn that we had in abundance and we could up value, upscale that cattle upscaled that carbs and proteins and everything in there made this great quality product for human consumption. And you know, the Corn Belt cattle feeding business was born. My grandfathers were both a part of that. That's exactly right. I, yeah, it's, it's true. It's absolutely true. Absolutely is what, and, and if you get into Iowa and look at the packing industry, it was all built off of that, which you just said. We don't have a packing industry in North Dakota because we're typically an exporting state. We export calves, whether it be backgrounded or yearling or something like that. We can feed cattle to finish in North Dakota. That's not a problem. You just got to adapt your ration so it has extra energy and feed them today's on feed. And we'll have nice uh, carcass weights and marbling in our cattle that we ship. The problem, though, is that we usually have to pay $65 a head to ship it down I-29 for cattle to be slaughtered. So trucking comes at an expense, but we have great interstates to do that with. So we have a regional area that can feed, but that kind of goes away from our original topic of just backgrounding cattle. Um, it's still feeding cattle, though. We have opportunities. Well, here in Iowa, we're a net importer of calves, so we're happy to take your calves, whether they've been backgrounded or preconditioned. <laughs> well, it's a real challenge up here. How much labor and time do you have? And if you got 500 cows, 
do you really want to be feeding 500 calves all winter long? Most people would say with a 5,000 head feed yard, what are you talking about? That's no big deal. <laughs> but in North Dakota, when you're pushing snow every day to feed the cattle, um, it can turn into an issue and labor becomes a challenge. And of course, people like to have a little family life balance too. And yeah, that becomes a challenge just because of our weather at times. Absolutely. Although I recall the last time you were on here, Carl, you were telling us about this magical thing called North Dakota concrete in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Frozen ground is a wonderful thing. And, and usually it thaws out once a year, not every other month. Um, and then the other issue I'll bring up is poor man's four wheel drive. That's a set of chains on a tractor. Don't tell my dad, but I just leave my chains on my tractor now. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You let her buy a four wheel drive tractor and you'll be good. Animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin dash survey. Okay. Well, it's actually been really fun having you back here. This is a fun conversation. I think it's really timely for our producers to be thinking about what they're going to be doing with calves as weaning season is either here or heading towards us quickly, but it's reached that time of the podcast where it's time for our final three questions. So are you ready? Well, sure. We'll try that. Okay. So the first question is, what is your favorite beef resource? Well, today I have to use our North Dakota Livestock Research Report. North Dakota State University Livestock Research Report. It just came out today and my my photo, no, not my photo of myself, but my ability to take photos happens to be on the back page. So that's my favorite report. Of course, we got articles in there as well, but I got to put a little promo piece out for that today because that is my favorite today. Excellent. Excellent. We'll have to go look that up. Okay. Question number two, what is something not related to beef that you are reading or otherwise consuming right now? Well, you said otherwise consuming. So I, I after my long day of uh, working in the office and then feeding livestock at night until the wee hours, uh, I usually take a little bit of time to unwind, but I do it using video. And the latest thing that I watched was English. That's the name of the show, English. And it revolves around eight episodes. So it's an eight hour series that revolved around settling the Dakotas, Nebraskas, that area, and the difficult times with that we had in settling that area and the improprieties that went on at that time and the whole relationship of how the cattle industry kind of started, but the whole dynamics of the people that were settled in the area and how it came about. Um, pretty interesting. It was a nice drama story. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's always good to put the science aside for a little while in the evening and let your brain slow down. Otherwise I can't shut my brain off at night and I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And it's the worst when you like wake up and you've had seven dreams about copper. That probably doesn't happen to anybody except for me, who's a mineral nutritionist. Right. But I'm like, Oh my God, I need to like write these ideas down. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Why is four o'clock in the morning, such a creative time. Right. <laughs> okay. Third and final question. What's a trait of someone you know that you think has helped them be successful? The trait I'm going to use is discipline. They're very disciplined in, in how they approach things. They're methodical. They're, they're, they, they meet their time frame or they allot their time frames accordingly. But they're uh, uh, adept at how they utilize their time. They're disciplined in what they do. So 
That's the word for the day, disciplined. Not beating somebody with a stick. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to working on, <laughs> on uh, we set our objectives for the day and we meet those objectives. And, and deliberately is the word I wanted to use. Deliberately focus on what we need to do. We all have time wasters in our day. We need to be disciplined not to use those. Unless that's part of your discipline that you need that. Yeah. So true. I definitely know some people who are very high in discipline, and sometimes I am amazed by the number of things on their to-do list that they can get done. Yeah. Of course, um, I'm finding in my job the interruptions that I have throughout the day, the unplanned interruptions. And when you're dealing with producers, unplanned eventually turns into planned. So you know you're just not going to get as much done as you hope to get done because this planned, unplanned events are going to happen. <laughs> So true. <laughs> Do that make sense? Wow. Talk about using no using words. No, yeah. it is so true because it, you know, we have so many potential distractions, all kinds of screens and things like that, right? It's so easy. You get a notification and then your mind has gone in a different direction, right? They've done studies with like one of the reasons why you shouldn't be on your phone when you're driving or like trying to look at a text is because it takes that extra few seconds to task switch. And that's the same thing that happens during the day. And then I know that I always think about you extension guys. It's, it's rough, right? So it's like you hear the phone ring all day long and you think, how did they get anything done? Well, that's the challenge. <laughs> that is the challenge. Unless until you get to that point, we realize that that was what you're there to do. Solve people's issues on a timely basis. And that is 100% true. I will say one thing that uh, my friend Mary Jernowski does um, beef specialist right at Nebraska is, um, you know, she happens to be out of the office and she'll kind of accrue her phone calls for the day and then she'll take them out and she'll go for a walk. And while she's on that walk, she'll call producers back. So she's like getting a little exercise in too, but then she does all of her calls at that one time. Right. And then kind of lets them accrue again. And she might have to call somebody back and later and everything. But I always thought that was kind of a, a good trick. That, that as long as you have time. It used to be we could do that when you're driving down the road to the next location until that's called distracted driving. You're not supposed to do that anymore. But yet you can talk to the person in the front seat next to you while you're driving down the road. And that's not distracted driving. I would say it is, but never mind. We might be digressing here. <laughs> yeah, I well, yeah, <laughs> things happen. <laughs> All right. Well, Carl, it's been great having you back on the Beef Podcast show. We look forward to uh, reading your research report there from North Dakota State University. And uh, so you, so you have a photo then in the back, you said? Oh, they always give credits to people to take photos. There's lots of different photos. Oh, awesome. So. Excellent. Perfect. Well, we will have to check that out. So thanks again for being here, Carl, and have a great day. Thank you very much.